Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with the editing team of Disney Plus's The Mandalorian, which received three of the eight nominations for Outstanding Single Camera Picture Editing for a Drama Series. The nominated episodes were Chapter 2, The Child, edited by Andrew Eisen, ACE, Chapter 4, Sanctuary, edited by Dana Globerman, ACE, and Dylan Fershine, and Chapter 8, Redemption, edited by Jeff Siebenek. All four are joining me today. Dana E. Globerman, ACE, has been nominated for four Ace Eddies for the feature films Thank You for Smoking, Juno, Up in the Air, and Young Adult. She was named Editor of the Year by the Hollywood Film Awards in 2009 and is the editor on Ghostbusters Afterlife, which was supposed to be out earlier this year, and it's killing me that due to COVID, we have to wait until next spring to see it. She also edited Creed 2, which was a previous Art of the Cut interview. Andrew S. Eisen, ACE, was editor on Brightburn, The House with a Clock in Its Walls, and The Imitation Game, was an additional editor on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, and an associate editor on The Hateful Eight. Jeff Siebenek has edited Cobra Kai, Eastbound and Down, Parks and Recreation, and the pilot of Young Sheldon. Dylan Fershine was a first assistant editor on Solo, A Star Wars Story, The Big Short, and others. He was an additional editor on John Hamburg's Why Him, an associate editor on Tron Legacy and Valkyrie. First of all, thank you all for joining me here. Congratulations on uh, the Emmy nominations and all that stuff. Could you each introduce yourselves so the people who are just listening would be able to understand who each person is and would go, oh, that's the voice that goes with Dana. Well, I think mine will be pretty easy to know who I am. I'm Dana Glauberman, the only female. I'm Andrew Eisen. I'm Jeff Siebenick. And I'm Dylan Fershine. First of all, this is such a big fan favorite. I'm sure Star Wars fans everywhere just want to soak it all up. How much is world building a part of the things that you want to show as you're trying to decide on your episode? You know, the good thing is that we entered a world that was already pretty well established and it was awesome to open the door and play around in this massive area that we were just finding a small little corner of. In terms of editing, we'll touch on this, I'm sure, but it's, you know, there's a certain style that we all adhere to, Star Wars conventions and Star Wars, like almost cliches that Star Wars invented. But for me, personally, the Star Wars world starts and ends with the sound design. And as soon as you can nail in those specific, perfect, beautiful, brilliant sounds that were established and starting all the way back in 1977, all of a sudden that world starts to feel like you're there, you're in the Star Wars universe. And I, it's just so exciting to play around in that world. That was one of those questions that I had about just sound design and making it feel like the world through sound. There's, there's actually, in a lot of the episodes that I listened to in season one, there's not a lot of dialogue. It's listening and hearing the atmosphere and all that stuff. Tell me a little bit about how important it is for you to build, I think of some of the big you know, action scenes, the attack by the walker on the village 
how much sound plays a part in the pacing of it and the believability of it. For me, when I approach a scene, whether it's Star Wars or any other film or TV show that I'm editing, I don't have sound lead me where I'm going. I cut to tell the story, whether it's on a blue screen with a big ATST that's not even there yet. It was a light on a crane, remember? It was a light on a crane. For the longest time, it was just a light on a crane, and that's what was supposed to everybody be scared at and shooting at. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for me, I literally just cut to tell the story, and then the sound design comes after, including music. I don't cut to music. Mandalorian has kind of inspired me to add more music into my edits after I'm happy with an actual scene because I didn't do that very often before. I, w- I do want to challenge uh, you or any of the, the other people on this about that idea of cutting for story when one of the biggest story elements is just a light on a crane. <laughs> you know? right. It takes some imagination to have it be a story, right? I found myself in the, in the editing phase of the, like, the early stages of it specifically when we were cutting the dailies and we didn't even have a previs to cut into it or like a, a, a drawing or anything to cut in using sound just to sell the story of that scene. Like for instance, with the IG-11, I would put in the sounds of him walking like the servos and the clomping feet, just so you knew that he was in the scene or he was walking around behind Mando or somewhere where like, even if you couldn't see him, I felt like it was very important to hear that character you know, it's like the backgrounds and especially like lasers we we got a laser effects but like i would sometimes for like the big battle scenes i'd just throw in these like really beautiful laser beds that had been designed for the movies that we had access to just to make it sound like oh my god there's a whole fight going on over there even though i'm looking at two characters here the world behind the camera is massive and there's a lot of activity always happening off camera which yeah. helps flesh it out and like gives that sense of danger and excitement, you know, the whole time. Yeah, I I agree with you, Jeff. Along those lines too, it's my initial cut is without any of that sound. In order to sell the scene properly, you know, it's good to add those sounds in so you know where it's happening. But I don't let the sound effects lead my cut. And I totally understand where Dana's coming from. And it's actually part of the way I was trained. I think we sort of come from us the same generation. We both started on film and eventually migrated to the digital world. You know, in digital, you, you had a lot more access to things that you couldn't do when we were on film. Back on the, in the film days, you had a, a dialogue mag track, you had a sound effects mag track, and you had a music mag track. And you didn't really add those sound effects or music until much later on. You cut basically with your one single production audio track. Okay. And that's what we had. But today... You know, we have access to a lot more and we're, you know, we have these massive libraries. Skywalker was very generous in sharing their Star Wars library with us to switch from sound to picture. There were a lot of scenes in episode 102 that I worked on that were only on blue screen. There's this whole chase where um, Mando is climbing up a, a sand crawler. You know, he's on a wall on the back lot, just basically standing there and punching things and nothing's really there. The only way I could get that to sell that scene to everybody in my first cut, even though, yes, personally, when I was doing it in my own room, in my own head, I was just cutting together what I had in production. But before I showed anybody, I did my own post-vis. I took pieces from the previs and I put them in there the same way I would do sound 
it's the only way that scene could sell is if I had done those visual effects um, in my cut ahead of time. And, and you really have to do a lot of work to sell it to the directors and the producers. If you don't, it's like, what am I looking at? You're really right. designing everything from scratch just to say, this is my rough cut. Yeah, and every director I've ever worked with or a producer or anybody in the business always says, oh, don't worry, I can look at a rough cut. I understand what I'm looking at. It's not true. I mean, oh, it may be true. I mean, I'm not saying it's not true, but they all of a sudden start questioning, well, where's this? Where's that? Where's this? You know, why is this? And, you know, you go, well, you know, I, it's, it's going to be there. Don't worry. But if I can show that ahead of time, so using you know, sound, sound effects, like Jeff was saying, you know, I'm not talking about every, you know, Foley footsteps. I'm talking about things that are part of the actual story that are just as important as pictures. So for me, those things I do insist on putting in and I put them in myself. Whereas, you know, when I need, you know, all the footsteps and the Foley, I will ask my assistant to cut all that stuff in. At, at and I'll tell you, we were all weirdly obsessed with getting those Foley footsteps down. When you see Mando walking across a stage floor, and you don't hear the footsteps, all of a sudden you add that subtle, like the sound of the spurs and the creaky wood. And the, it's, it's down to that kind of minutia when you're working in this world. It just makes, it makes him feel tougher, makes the world feel realer. Yeah. But that's all like seasoning to taste after the fact. It's not important to, to have that to sell the scene. So I, from that standpoint, I agree with Dana. Like those, it's not um, important to put in those kind of sounds. And then as far as music, I think music comes also. I agree with Dana, you know, but I do put it in, but it's after the cut is, I feel very comfortable with the picture of it. And then you find music to support that picture as opposed to finding music and then cutting to the music. I would never, I don't think that's the best approach. Well, before we, I get off of sound, there, there's the idea of the sound that you need to sell the scene to somebody else, but there's also the idea of the sound you, you need just so that the visual pacing still feels right. Tell me a little bit about production sound on, on something like Dana on that big battle scene, right? There's really nothing. There's no real explosions that you're hearing. So if you don't hear those explosions, do you have to put something in that tells the story? Like I understand that your picture cut is to tell the story, but it feels like you would have to have some kind of sound design, even if, are you making the noises in your head with your mouth? I'm much more of a visual editor than a sound editor. A lot of times as I'm just assembling, I am making those sounds in my head. I know what an explosion would sound like and I know what, you know, a laser would sound like. And so I'm just imagining all of that, much like I'm imagining what this ATST is gonna look like. Every single episode was previs. The amount of work you would put into an editor's cut, we did on every previs episode. Yeah, there weren't eight episodes, there were 16 episodes. That's, that's how we kind of see it, in terms yeah. of the, work, the workload. Who cut the previs episodes? I started very early in the process. I came in before there was even a post department. I was like the guy in post. I mean, I didn't. there was no assistant editor, there was no post producer, it was just me. When I started getting these temporary previous shots sent down from ILM and they were still working out the process and how they were going to do it as these like a couple of scenes from episode 101 came in and then a couple of scenes from episode 103 and Dave Filoni was overseeing those at the time then we hired um the third floor third floor is a previous company yeah great bunch of dudes really talented awesome I mean hard working guys and they're always down to get creative and like super involved in everything. Then they started pumping out previous episodes. And I think I, I cut 101, 102, 103. I did a big chunk of 107 
maybe half a 105. At that point, I realized, because up until that point, I thought, hey, no, let me cut the whole thing. I can cut the whole thing. I, want to cut the whole thing. <laughs> I, was, I was really overzealous because it was, you know, such a dream come true. But it didn't take long for me to realize that, yeah, I'm not going to be able to do this. <laughs> a four-hour massive visual effects feature all by yeah, yourself and half the time yeah. of a regular one. I would have made it happen, guys. While you're having you, a kid. I didn't. You pro- while you were having oh, yeah, a kid. While you're having a kid, Jeff. Yeah, and I had a kid, yeah. Were you using that previs to help you with your pacing and with understanding the story as you are cutting the actual episodes? 100%. Yes, 100%. That, I mean, because we had cut our previous, or even if Jeff had cut an episode that I had worked on, that pacing was already nailed down. We went through a lot of vetting with John Favreau and Dave Filoni and the directors and the visual effects people and the, everybody and the production people sat and watched those previs as much as we would on a, a, a finished cut. We, we had to get those things as nailed down as possible before production began because it, it drove what was in the volume. Volume, the volume was a big, big video LED wall. Yeah. Uh, that was very important to visual effects to know what those where we were going to be pointing the camera and what they had to design at ILM for those walls. Um, and then, yeah, just general pacing and, and, uh, and also because John wanted to nail down his script. So we, a lot of the writing happened in that previous phase as it did later on as well. But the closer we could get to what the show would look like. So, so because we had that as a base, once we started getting the footage, we were kind of trying to maintain that same general thing. Now, a lot of times production didn't match what was in the previous. So we obviously went off and did our, you know, did a whole new thing. But certainly for action scenes, the action scenes were pretty tight and we tried to maintain. That's what the whole, that's the whole point of previous in the, in the first place. That's where, you know, it started. Like in a- the one thing that lived in previous, I think, from the initial previous cut all the way to the final sound mix was the sound design. Strangely enough. That's because true. we would we would design the hell out of those previous episodes because it's cartoons. There's no sound. And all of a sudden you start to miss. Like I think that's what I was talking about with the footsteps. You start to miss the sound of like, well I put footsteps walking on gravel because it's a cartoon. You don't see anything. And all of a sudden it's like man, I really want that on the live action shot. So I, you know, like, and the sounds of guns clicking and gear rattling and, you know, stormtroopers talking in their mics and stuff that all lived, you know, that stayed forever. Yeah. It became ultimately super essential to all of us when we were finishing our cuts too, because like Dana, cutting an entire action scene with a light on a pole was like not possible. So that's where we relied heavily on all the previs to like, we would cut them out and stick them in and, you know, cause like, I don't know where IG is standing and I don't know where the bad guys are shooting from because they didn't shoot it yet or it's going to be CG. So you have to figure that out for pacing and storytelling and like you said, telling the story. Yeah, and all that work that we had done in previous to do that sound, we, we were not going to throw away once we started getting production again. We, we, we repurposed it as much as we could. It was awesome though because it helped. You, you, could, you could literally concentrate on the editing, picture editing, getting that story right and then almost literally copy and paste the old sound design into your current cut and then slide a couple of things around and boom, it's designed, move on, go on to the next scene instead of having to spend a whole other day working your way through sound designing a scene or something, you know? But as Andrew said, that just means you have to edit 16 episodes instead of eight. That's exactly how it felt. <laughs> but you know, I'll tell you something too. It's like Andrew's like your episode 102 was wildly different from previous to finished product. Yes. You know, none of them, you couldn't watch them like side by side and be like, okay, that's it. Cause they right. changed, they evolved constantly from the very beginning all the way to the very end. Right. And, and by the end of it, it was always. Yeah. That's the beauty of what we do. I mean, we are the final rewrite of 
any story. For me, Previs is is a guide. Yeah, I try and follow it, but there's no rule to stick to it 100%. Depending on what comes in from production, you're allowed to change things, even okay. though the Previs was approved by John and Dave. To that point, Dana, the whole point of the Previs was to nail it all down, but the truth is, once we got started getting footage in, they completely went in different directions very often when they were on the set. In fact, in, in episode 107, there was a scene at the beginning where uh, Cara Dune is fighting this bad guy and they were attached by this... Um, Jeff, what's, what would you call that thing? That I don't know, the right. electro-tether. <laughs> so in Previs, that was a completely different scene. It was it was Cara Dune having a standoff with a bad guy in a bar, playing, a, playing a game of like this sort of a chess-like thing. With, it's called crutches, with pieces knocking other pieces out. Almost well, like they, they looked like floating guitar picks. And she'd right. like push a button and one would ram into the other one. It was like, it was the weirdest thing. Dude. So I'm sitting at my Avid getting dailies in for that scene that day. And I, and I get, this, and I'm looking at the footage and I'm going, what the heck? This is nothing. No one had told me that they had reconceived the scene. <laughs> and clearly they had done it. They had, been, they had reconceived it for quite some time ahead of time because there's a whole choreographed fight that's going on. But I had no idea. So I, I'm calling the director and going, what happened? What's going on? And I didn't even really understand what they were doing because, of course, there was no cord. All I see is them ship moving their hips around while they're standing. So I realized it was a fight, but I didn't understand what it was supposed to be happening and then they explained to me oh there's this thing and then i started then you know we cut the scene and then um i had one of our, one of our amazing visual effects editors or assistant editor zach fine um designed those beautiful uh, electric course for me based on the uh, episode one the race right pod racing. Yeah, pod yeah. racing so yeah there's a lot of imagination that goes on and, and a lot of things that change between previs and production so the, that's the biggest evolution but 102 changed significantly from what was scripted and previs to what the final cut looked like because there are just certain things that didn't feel like they were working for John. And so we started thinking outside of the box and creating scenes where there weren't any. And it was it was actually the most fun episode in that way because we got to be very, very creative and really think outside the box and figure out ways to repurpose footage to make it a different episode than it sort of started out as. In fact, 102 was supposed to have one of those flashbacks that Jeff cut in 101 and 103 and 108. One of those was supposed to be in 102. And we took it out because it wasn't quite working and we moved it to 101 instead. So that, that there's a lot that, you know, goes on throughout the editing process. You just mentioned something really interesting to me, which was that you created scenes that weren't there. <laughs> Can you tell me what one of those scenes would be and from what parts did you build a scene that was not there? One of the scenes is Mando's at Agnot's farm and he's saying, you know, the Jawas stole my stuff and, and you know, I'm not saying, well, you know, you got to negotiate with them. And he's like, I'm not going to negotiate with Jawas. The scene had Mando was saying different things. The blocking was completely different. Ugnot was at his little workstation almost the entire time in that scene. And it was a much longer scene. And for whatever reason, John, it just wasn't singing for him. And he's like, we have to think of a way to do this differently. We have to like make, you know, make this a little bit more efficient. He wasn't quite getting to the point of the story that he wanted to get come across. So... I started taking pieces of Ugnot where he was standing in a certain position where Mando wasn't, and Mando was sitting just repairing himself, and I comped them together. They were never, like, some of that conversation where they're standing there talking to each other, they're not actually talking to each other. 
we could put whatever we want in Mando's mouth. And same, same for, uh, for Ugnaught. In fact, uh, we had to reanimate Ugnaught's mouth to say things that he hadn't originally said. Because he, that, that was a puppet head that did move in sync to Nick Nolte's voice. We had to get Nick Nolte back to record some new lines. And that was stuff that was shot on the volume. So it wasn't blue screen where it was easy to sort of just slip them around wherever we wanted. I do crazy stuff in the Avid. I, I cut people out, I animated them around, and I slipped them around. And, and just created a scene that, that was very different from the original scene, using the existing footage, but just manipulating it in a way that created a new scene. It's kind of the benefit of having a, a scene with a bunch of actors that don't have faces. It does help. You, you really can do whatever you want in order to tell a story. Andy definitely does some wacky things visual effect-wise in the Avid. In the episode five, which Andrew and I cut together, there was one thing that he literally took just the mouth of the character <laughs> and put it into the actual take that we liked better with the rest of the performance. Because we could do it. And- could. Right. The actor had said the right thing in one take, but the take looked all wrong. But his mouth was doing the right thing. But we wanted this other take. So we you know, cut out his mouth from one, put it in the other. And visual Cute effects. It, so it was the right yeah. angle. And yeah. The- yeah. And then and they were like, well, I don't know. This is how are we going to make this work? It's not exactly the same angle. But in the end, the visual effects people, you know. We pushed them. We pushed them hard, and we and they got it, and it, and, it, and it worked great. It really worked great. So yeah, we do a lot of we manipulate stuff. All right, now I want to to ask the opposite question because obviously having some a main character that has a helmet on the time has the benefit of whatever we want him to say, whenever we want him to say it, we can make him say it. The flip side is you really have no like I think of our what we do on a typical day, looking at dailies. You're staring at somebody's face looking for the slightest clues to emotion, the eyes, right? Dana's pointing at her eyes. You don't have that with this character. Talk to me about trying to find the emotion in a mask. I think you could find a lot of emotion without seeing the person's eyes. You you get different kind of emotion, but all it takes is just a little cock of the head or a little turn of the head or a little body movement or the slightest sign that, the character is reacting to something that does so much. And then you can put whatever words you want in his mouth to uh, sell that or just a sound of some sort just to sell that, a moan or whatever the case may be. It's a little bit more challenging on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think in any particular scene, you can take from anywhere in an actual take for that specific reaction. It's kind of freeing in a sense, but it is difficult, but you get such a a second chance to reimagine a scene or a performance without a face, right? So like you were saying with the eyes, the the eyes now become the whole body. Like she said, a a little cock of the head, you put it in a certain place and it means so much more than if it was, you know, if you could see his reaction. I remember there was a scene in 101 when they're right before the big battle scene at the end where the actor was performing it a lot more hectic and frenetic than John had wanted. And we wanted him to be a little bit calmer and like we wanted him to be a little bit more like together in that scene. And so it was literally like taking uh, his performance, slowing it down, reversing it, putting a like a, a subtle freeze frame on it. And in even just having like a motion to stop 
as long as it's imperceptible, it makes so much more of an impact. And you can manipulate that. You can almost become like an extension of the actor himself. I'll tell you the best thing about that, though, is like with Dana's episode. <laughs> I remember this was so awesome. When we would be in the visual effects reviews, we'd be watching it. Before they recorded all of the final voices, there had been so many rewrites to so many scenes that I think Mando in your episode was played by five different people, including John <laughs> Like, John Favreau recorded some temp voice. I did. Andrew did. Dylan did. Everybody in our whole department was Mando at one time in her episode. And it was kind of hilarious. Because it'd be in one scene, you know, you'd hear Andrew's voice, and then John Favreau's voice, and then Andrew's, and then mine, and then John's, in one scene. Dana, did you do any uh, temping of uh, Mandalorian's voice? I did not, voice? unfortunately. I really wanted to, but there was... There was nowhere for my voice to fit in. Come on. You know, did a lot let's, of temping? let's hear your Bryce, best Mandalorian uh, Bryce impersonation. <laughs> Bryce did a lot. Bryce, Bryce temped a lot of stuff. And she was really good. She yeah. brought a lot of gravitas to the performance because she's now an actress. My claim to fame is that my voice stuck in my episode 101. As we were doing the Stormtrooper voice recordings, there's a one trooper who says, we have you four to one. And they tried to record it and they had... 15 different voice actors come and try to replace it. And John and Dave just didn't think that he sounded like enough of like a little. Did Dave. they know that was you? Yeah, they, <laughs> well, they knew. And they're like, you know what? I think Steve wins that one because he sounds the most like a little, per like a person you want to punch. <laughs> <laughs> and there you have it. <laughs> you better believe every single person that I know has heard the story of watch that scene. That's my voice. I've heard of somebody having a punchable face, but I've never heard of some having someone have a punchable voice. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Andrew Eisen, Dana Globerman, Dylan Fershine, and Jeff Siebenek. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Dana Globerman, Dylan Fershine, Jeff Siebenek, and Andrew Eisen. Talk about flashbacks. They're big in this uh, series, especially in episode eight. Maybe, uh, maybe there's another one where there's more, but episode eight had an extended flashback series. How do you get in and out of those? How do you know, man, we got to get back to the main story. We need to be back in present day. Who wants to talk a little bit about Dylan? Have you, I don't know if you've talked much. Uh, how do you Dylan get in the flashbacks? And I will say that it was a, a lot of trial and error because originally the first flashback we were supposed to see was in 102. After Mando falls off the sand crawler, he lands on the ground. It's supposed to flash to white and go to his first like flashback. And then it comes in 103 after the armor, and then it pays off in 108. John kind of nixed it fairly early on after the production of 102 because it just didn't seem to fit. And I just so happened to have all of the armor scenes in the first season. And I thought, okay, well, in 103, me and Deb spent, Deborah Chow spent quite a bit of time focusing on 
the rhythm of the hitting and the cuts to things happening in the flashback. And she helped design a lot of the previs for those flashbacks. So like the armorer would hit and then that would cut to an explosion. And so me and her sort of like helped develop this way, like you said, way in. So when Mando's sitting in the armorer, it was almost like PTSD, like the slamming, the pounding would bring him back to this past. And that would be our way into it, okay? And I remember Andrew, when they cut his flashback out of his episode, I kind of started thinking to myself, like, shouldn't we introduce this in episode 101? I think we all took passes at it, to be honest with you. But it was kind of one of those things where after they shot episode 108, which was late in the schedule, that was when we finally had actual dailies to cut for that flashback. Up until then, we were always just using previs. And I had found this really great piece of temp music with this rhythm and the banging, and it was like hitting. And I was like, unfortunately, that's where I start to say, I'm going to find the piece of music first because I know it's going to dictate the rhythm and the pace of this scene. That works for a montage. That's true. Yeah, it works for a montage. So I started with the 103 flashback, and that was the one that we did the most work on in previs and got that really sick, okay? And then when Taika directed his episode, he directed all of the flashback stuff. Some of it was different, some of it wasn't, but it was brilliant and beautiful and had all the pieces there. But it was pieces. And it was kind of like a puzzle with every piece is the same color. So you kind of throw it in the air and you see what what works. And we went back and forth on it a lot to find, especially the 101 flashback, because we didn't know, okay, what are we going to reveal in 101? What are we going to reveal in 103? What are we going to reveal in 108? Obviously, 108 is the big payoff. So the first one, we started talking in terms of story with John and Dave. The first one is we're setting up the flashback. We're setting up that Mando is a child and that his parents are in danger. In 103, we're setting up that it's droids. It was like the Imperial attack bots that were actually the threat. And then in 108, we pay it off with how he was ultimately rescued and saved by Mandalorians, which was awesome. That kind of like the evolution of how to tell the story and what pieces to use where definitely helped a lot. On the stuff that we have some scenes for, for example, we've got one of, um, oh, the big fire with uh, Baby Yoda stopping the flames from uh, engulfing everybody. That's 108. That's an awesome story how that came to be. I don't want to, I mean, I've, I've been doing a lot of talking, but it's a really cool story. I'll, I'll make it quick. We were in previs, like we were like a week out from shooting. That section of the story hadn't quite gotten figured out yet. Like they basically made it into the, after the big battle scene, Mando gets his bell rung. They go into the thing. They find the escape hatch. They get out. Okay. And I remember Taika was like, we should have like a bigger moment here. We should have a bigger beat here. And maybe it should involve the child. And John was like, yeah, yeah. We really need the child to like do something big here so that he can, you know, kind of show his power, but also then get knocked out. Because, you know, after he uses his power, he gets knocked out. And then he's kind of like sleeping for a little while. Because that way, then when he comes back, it's, you know, whatever. I was playing a Star Wars video game at the time. And I remembered back to an old Star Wars video game. I forget what it was called. But there was like these clone trooper specialists. And one of them was a flame trooper. I threw that idea out. And then Dave perked up. John perked up. And they were like, yes, let's do it. And then we started looking online for these flame troopers. And like, 
what if the flame trooper comes up and blows and then they go, and I'm in this room with the three heavy hitters on the show and they're like getting excited, like kids giggling and getting super. And then Tyker was like, and what if the baby stops the flame? And John's like, yeah, what if it's a big ball and they push it back and like all of this crazy stuff. I mean, literally it happened like that. And then they went to the third floor guys, the previous guys. And this is before we were even in our offices. Like we were still kind of like weeks away from shooting. Third floor guys started it right away. I got that footage within, you know, probably like the next four or five days, cut it together. And it literally was like, it, the inception of that idea took probably two weeks and it went from nothing to fully realized in two weeks. And it was awesome. So exciting. Um, I've got a scene uh, from uh, the big fight between Mandalorian and... Uh, I. Aaron. Yeah, the child shows up at the end and is looking yeah. at them. Can somebody talk to me about cutting this scene with this uh, this fight scene and what cutting fight scenes is like? Cara Dune, played by Gina Carano, she did all of her own stunts, which is amazing, and she was totally into that. And cutting that scene was actually a lot of fun. Cutting a scene like that is pretty straightforward because the choreography is spot on. There were several cameras shooting at the same time and it was just cutting from angle to angle but there's also a little bit of comedy in that scene with baby yoda showing up at the end sipping soup at the end of the day i never thought that that would be the biggest meme going around town it's all about timing in terms of the comedy at the end having her uh be you know know how to throw a punch take a punch it made such a difference in terms of how you cut stuff together. Often you're trying to cut around the actors doing it because they're not throwing the real punch. They're being careful. They don't want to get hit. It was a lot of fun to put together. And of course, to end it with, uh, with Baby Yoda just makes it all the better. I'm sure that having someone that can do their own stunts is a help. Have you guys, what's the difference between uh, fight scenes you guys have cut before that needed a stunt performer? A lot of it is, is the angle too. For stunt performers or even actors who are, who are doing their actual punches. It's all about the angle where the camera is situated because you can sell a punch and a hit if the camera's not perpendicular to the actors because you can clearly see a miss. If the camera's a little bit over one actor's shoulder, you can sell the hit with an actual sound effect a hundred times better than if you didn't have it. I kind of go back a little bit on what I said earlier, something like that. Sound effects is another helpful tool to sell a fight like that. How wimpy were the production sounds for that fight? <laughs> I don't even remember. Do you, Dylan? Yeah, they didn't basically exist because obviously no one's really hitting. The only thing is her actually going, oof, you know, or Pedro was recorded for it. So, you know, we, we had him record ADR. He did his efforts. She... I think we had her do the efforts, but I, I think we used as many as we could, you know, on, you know, from the actual production. For those who might not understand what the word efforts mean, could you explain what an effort is from an actor? Do an example. Let's, let's do an example. You know, it's funny. I'll say in episode 107, he has that arm wrestle of Pedro with uh, Cara Dune, uh, you know, with ba and the baby's watching and think, feels like that he's being threatened. And so he's doing his ADR for that. And he's like, ar, 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 and he's like, I, it just sounds like I'm taking a shit. 
<laughs> but we uh, we we made it. You know, we we dialed it down, and we you know he sounded like he was struggling. I wanted to get in another uh, scene, which is of course the mudhorn scene. Uh, Mandalorian's down in the dirt. He's barely able to stand up. He pulls the knife out. Tell me about cutting that scene and making it pay off. Well, it was definitely something that you know was designed by the director Rick uh, Famuyiwa in the in the during previs, and um, the intention was was laid out in previs. Although what ended up getting shot didn't quite match the previs, and we worked we worked that like a piece of clay, like a lot to get that moment to really really work. Part of that again, I'm going to bring in sound because part of it was having sound disappear the mudhorns making noise and all this other stuff, you know, and then it's the standoff and he's down and out. And the way to really make that sell is we wanted to get inside Mando's head. What is he feeling? And so by sucking out all the sound, it forces you to focus on him and just what, even though he's not doing a lot, you can see that he's struggling and, and he's struggling to lift up that knife. You know, we just looked at it over and over and over again and just kept tweaking the cut to get just the right rhythm and the right sensibility to get that scene to, to play the way it does. It was a little bit like a dance and we took a lot of time with it and, and we got there. I got hired on this, on this show and I, it was, I've not really done TV before. And I, you know, my understanding of television is that you shoot an episode in eight days, you, you finish cutting it in eight days and it gets handed off to the sound people. They get handed off to the music, visual effects, and it's done. And it's an assembly line. We put as much time and effort into these cuts along with keeping the directors around for as long, you know, as much like a feature as anything I've ever worked on before. So we had the luxury to really hone these scenes and, and not just rush through them. So it was an evolution. But that particular scene, you know, we just we just kept playing with over and over and over again until it started to feel right. Did the directors get more than their typical union DGA four days? I don't know. To John and Dave for really treating this show very much like a feature, you know, just in terms of process. The, they really wanted to keep all the directors around as long as they felt they needed to be included. As far as the editors go, they kept all of us involved in every step along the way. Whereas on a typical episodic show, the editors cut their episode and pass it on to the next group of people, sound design, music, and generally speaking, we don't get to see it all the way through to the end of final mix. We were the curators of our episodes. We were the curators because there's so many moving parts that needed to be paid very close attention to. Timing and pacing and also like blocking, you know, like the VFX would come in and the VFX would be just slightly wrong because I think, you know, when they farm out these shots, they're not sending you know, necessarily full cuts or scenes, they're working on a shot at a time, a shot at a time. It's like, well, that shot doesn't work with that shot or with that shot because of where the guy is or what he's looking at. It's very important. So we would catch that. John might not catch it. Dave might not catch it because they're in a review room watching pieces and parts of every episode every day for X, you know, amount of time. And it kind of came down to the same thing with the sound design. We had lived with it for so long and dialed it in for so long that if there was something missing or wrong that didn't work for the story or the world building, et cetera, John might not catch it or John would catch it and be like, wait, this doesn't sound like the way I remember it. You know what I mean? 
And then we would be able to say, well, the reason is because this, this, and this, because we were there from the very beginning all the way to the very end. I think it was a really great process. I loved, I loved being that involved well, Jeff, in the, every aspect of the production. It's, it's pretty much the way it works in features where the, you know, the editor is involved at every single stage. And, that's, and so that I, I, it was very familiar to me. I was very nervous going in thinking it wouldn't be familiar to me, but it turned out to be exactly what I'm used to. I've never had that experience of being so involved with the visual effects process. You know, I, I'm always the guy that supervises the sound mix. Like that's definitely my favorite part of the whole process. But to be there for all, like the evolution of every single shot in your episode was, oh my God, so exciting. Such a, a, a joy to see it every step of the way and be there as a part of the process. Another great thing about it is we were all under one roof. And so we were able to hop on over to visual effects and give them notes. And our reviews were literally in a tiny room with seemed like 27 people. <laughs> <laughs> and these days it's 27 people on a Zoom call, right? That's yeah. Exactly. Um, but it was, you know, a small review room for all of us to sit in to, to look at all the visual effects. There's great camaraderie to, be, between all the departments too. That's another thing very important to say. Like people, this show is very special. Sometimes you don't always get along with everyone. There's different personalities. This is just having fun. Every day it's hard, hard work, but everyone's having fun. I know we talked about this a little bit, but um, I do have the scene of the walker uh, looking down into the water, deciding whether it's going to step in there and, and the resulting about uh, 40 seconds of material. Dana, is that you? Yeah, it's me, Dylan. Dylan, we haven't heard a lot from you. Talk to me a little bit about that scene. One of the things somebody mentioned is you've got all this previs and you've got this light on a stick or on a crane. At what point do you say, I would rather have the light on the stick than I would rather have previs that looks like a walker? Like, Talk to me a little bit about that, but also just editing this scene with this walker and, and the the anticipation of when is it going to step in the water? You know, that was one of those ones where the, the previs didn't quite ever get to the point where it had really nailed everything down. So there was a lot of work still that went into it. They, they got it to a point where they felt like they had, they knew what they wanted to shoot for production, you know, what they needed to shoot, but then there was a lot of room left for what they were going to have to improve in, in visual effects and, and all that. So, for example, we spent a lot of time improving where the ATSD actually walks out of the forest to really build out that moment where it takes some time. Then the trees start to move, a real like King Kong kind of moment. That was always the reference. Same goes for the walker going into the thing. We always referenced uh, Robocop for Ed 209 when he's trying to go on the stairs. And we we're talking about Phil Tippett and we all watched it and we're trying to figure out how we could make it feel like that. You know, just give it that kind of fun. As far as choosing whether to use previs or not, in some ways, in that case, I mean, where we needed it, we used it just because we need to say, okay, it's falling and there's nothing there and we need to see something so we can kind of sell the story. But a lot of times the light actually kind of did the job. It was easier, at least if once we had seen it, at least set it up at the beginning to then use the light and the, uh, you know, the audience or viewer could, you know, kind of fill in the holes. But that's a big place where sound I think helped us out a lot because although, you know, when Dana and I were working on, you know, the initial cut and yes, we kept it clean, there's so much and you just need to focus on telling the story. Once we started putting the sound in, it was really one of those places where people could then go, oh, okay, I see it's Okay. It's walking here. It's doing this. Oh, it's falling. It's the turrets turning. So, you know, we have to watch out that kind of stuff. As the ATST is walking out of the forest, when we first cut to that big wide shot, 
to show the distance between ATST and the villagers, there wasn't a lot of space because ATST is so huge because of his size compared to where the villagers were, it didn't look like it was a lot of distance. So we needed visual effects to help us out to make that distance sell a lot better than it did with just dailies because it really wasn't that big of a piece of field. But the other thing that we worked a lot on was the ATST stepping forward and then falling into the water. I mean, that was worked over and over and over again. Does he take a step forward and then pull back? Does he just, like, that was a big part of editing in terms of building the anticipation and building the tension of when he actually falls in. Are you saying that you want to do those things that are not in previs and then you're saying, you know, through the director or whatever, we need these VFX to tell the story we're trying to tell? Or were, or were they there in the dailies? Some of it was there in the dailies, some of it was not. We, you know, we had to create some beats and some moments in visual effects to sell it. Yeah, and as uh, Andrew mentioned, we did a lot of that stuff where you're going, where you'd re- repurpose a piece or we found some other thing where it's, it's, if we put it in reverse, if we move it up over here, then it works differently. So we tried to use it where we needed to, you know, yeah. to get the story across and then turn it over to VFX. I was going to say, in that scene in particular, VFX had a, a big contribution in terms of um, designing things that had that weren't anywhere. Like we needed their input to create a lot of that, the the the, the shots that just we you know we just we just have a have a brainstorm in a VFX review and go okay what do we need here what's missing yeah. and then they would come up with something. No, and we talked to the animation supervisor Hal Hickel and like hey what if we did this said, yeah let's try that so we'd send him a cut make sure do you think this is something we could get by said, yeah I can get behind that and if I can maybe do this and then we. It made it a little bit easier if we had to try to not sell something to John and uh, Dave, but at least say, hey, we're all on the same page. Would this work for you guys? We had already talked it through so we could be on the same page. It was a very collaborative effort. And sometimes our cuts would literally, it'd be cut, 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 cut. And then there'd be a freeze frame with a block of text in the middle. And then the <laughs> ATST moves its toes and that's what we would give to them and kind of imagine the, the timing and kind of imagine what would happen. And then they would come back and it would, you know, and then that, that's the other reason why we were still on because they would come back with these new shots that we just designed and the timing would change. Or else we'd record ADR and John would have a new line pitch and then that would make the scene longer. Or honestly, Ludwig would write a piece of music and it would be like, you know what, that music's so good. Let's extend the scene a little bit so it could end sooner or longer. But you know what I mean? Like it was constantly evolving all the way up into the very last minute. I've got one other scene here, which is basically the uh, don't touch that scene with uh, with the child where they're driving along and he starts pushing, but don't touch that. And he moves it. How difficult is a scene like that to cut when you've got, I'm assuming, a puppet and you've got a guy in a mask that and it's dark and there's not much to see? I mean, talk to me about cutting the don't touch that scene. That scene was challenging because there's no dialogue. And like you say, there's a guy in a mask and a puppet. And so you need to really create the moments to sell the humor and to sell what's going on and to sell the charm. And it was just going through dailies and looking at every little moment that could be used that tells the story, which is 
exactly what we all do. We go through dailies, we look at moments to tell the story. And that was the perfect example of that. There's that tremendous need for an editor to have social skills and collaborate. Can you talk to me, can anybody talk to me about how much of your job is not, and I don't mean pushing buttons, but like literally watching dailies and that part of being in front of your computer and how much of it is away from your computer? I mean, I would say a significant amount of the time. You know, at the beginning, you're by yourself in that room and you're really, you, you know, it takes a lot of time to just sort of go through those dailies, put it together. You don't want anyone else around. You just want to be by yourself and try to get that nailed down. Then you bring in your director and then, you know, he sees it for the first time. You cringe, he's cringing. Um, but uh, and from that point on, that's when the collaboration starts. And yes, you have to, you definitely have to get along with your director. You have to be able to collaborate. You may disagree or he may... You know, you may have done something you thought was the bee's knees, and he's like, that's just not working for me. And, you're, you know, you might want to say, well, come on, well, I don't care. This is way better. And he's like, you can't do that. You know, you have to, you know, it's a director's medium. You do have to, um, to you have to learn to work with people and to collaborate and to be, and to compromise. And if you really feel strongly about something, I think in a very diplomatic way, you, you explain why you think it's, you think that is better. And then, you know, you can work through it. But Ultimately, I mean, for, you know, the, if, if the director wants something, that's the director's going to get what he wants. And, and then the same thing happens once at every stage of the way. You have your mixers, you have your animators, you have your, uh, you have John and Dave, you have everybody. And, and you, it's very important to try to be as diplomatic as possible and, and to be able to articulate what it is you want to say and what you're, what you're trying to tell, especially when something doesn't, they don't really understand. I, there are several instances where John would say, why did you do that? You'd say, well, that's, this is why. And John would go, oh, oh, I get it. I see. Okay, fine. Let's, let's move on with that. That's great. One of John's favorite things to say was, why did you do that? I didn't go to film school. <laughs> <laughs> what did you say? Uh, one of John's favorite things to say was, why did you do that? I didn't go to film school. Right. Oh. <laughs> All right. But everyone has different personalities and everyone has their own approach to how, uh, you know, they do they do it. But as I said earlier, you know, we got along great. We're really a family. And, and you know, the more time we spend together, the more it becomes, you know, that way. One of the hardest things for me, and I think one of the biggest lessons I learned was curbing my enthusiasm. Because <laughs> I had no, no shortage of ideas. And I can tell you right now, not all of them are great. But when you get to that point where... Like, I'm a kid in a candy store. It's Star Wars. I mean, this is by my lifelong dream to work in the Star Wars universe. And every day I just want to be like, oh, wait, wait, what if we did this? Or what if, oh, wait, what about this? Or what if, and like, at a, at a point, I think even John said, hey, you know what, you know what, Jeff, we, we got this one. <laughs> and, and so I have to kind of sit there and let them talk and get through their thing. And then, and then, and then when there's a chance, I'll, I'll pipe up and I'll say, you know, I thought that you could do this. And I would say 50% of the time they'd be like, you know what, that's really good. Let's try that. Or 50% of the time they'd be like, okay, we got this. I just want to ask one last question, which is the idea of ownership. You do not own this. You are a craftsperson working on someone else's project, whether that's the showrunner, whether that's the director, whether that's the studio, but we still own it right in our hearts. We own it. Right. How do you walk that line between, oh, I really need ownership of this because otherwise I could care less and I'm not doing anything, and I know that I, I'm not the true owner? My editor's cut is my editor's cut, and it's my best foot forward, and I'm going to do everything I can to make it the thing that I want to see on screen, and then I pass it off, and that becomes the point when it's like, 
take my ideas, run with them, or let's change them all. But at that point, it's that's where it becomes the whole, like the collective. But when I get those dailies and when I'm in the room, the dark room, pouring over footage and dailies and sound effects and that, that's when it's mine. For me, I find filmmaking is very collaborative. And I draw out a blueprint as my assembly, as scripted. Generally speaking, I do not, in my assembly, I do not take out lines or take out scenes or rearrange things because I feel like my job as an editor is to deliver a cut to the director as scripted. And then at that point, we collaborate to bring the director's ideas into what I have already created. And whether it's the director wanting to to take things out or add things in or move things around, whatever the case may be, we, at that point, it's a collaboration between all filmmakers. That's how I approach things. And I'm a, I'm a very strong believer of collaboration. Um, I agree with uh, Dana, same, um, same points. The only thing I'd add is just that it's really critical for people to know when to put your stuff out, as Jeff said, and when to be able to step back. And I think that's one of the big things that as an editor, I'm constantly fighting with and learning is just to know when to do that, when to, you know, push back and be like, well, actually this, or to say, this is your time. We're going to do it the way you want to do it. Cause sometimes you hear, um, a director's ideas and be like, oh, that's not going to work. And you're thinking to yourself, like, how am I ever going to do it? Your, your mind is so busy thinking about how you can make it work. But once you get into it, once you get into the footage, you go, ah, you know what, actually, I can do this. What if I yeah, did that? It's actually like really good. It's like, oh, wait, that, that yeah. totally works. We as editors might think it's a terrible idea and want to push back. But also as editors, it's our job to try and make that idea work as best as we can. Even if we know that it's not going to work, we have to show the director or the filmmakers why it doesn't work because they're not going to believe it doesn't work unless they see that it doesn't work. And, you know, like Jeff and Dylan just said, it might be the greatest idea ever that we didn't think of, but that's where the collaboration comes in. Yeah. And even if it doesn't work, it can still lead you to the right solution. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Yep. I take very strong ownership of my cut, but I, I will never fight to the point where I'm going to get an argument with someone. If the director wants, or, or John or Dave or anybody, feels strongly about something, I absolutely will defer to them. There's no question about it. Everyone's really smart. It's, it's very subjective in a lot of ways. Everything is subjective. The way, you know, your taste buds are subjective. So the fact that they really want something is uh, really important. We, we do make a lot of contributions and they do, and directors see things that they didn't think of and they go, that's a great idea. And they take that too. So it is a back and forth. But in, ultimately, the ownership does belong to, to John and Dave uh, at the at bottom line. I trust in the process so much that, you know, when they, when they really like something or want something, that, that is, it's the right way to go. It just, if I can add something real quick, I'll just say that early in my career when I was working with my buddies on uh, Eastbound and Down first season, I, I had not very much experience in professional editing ever. And I remember I, I was the kind of guy that waited for them to tell me what to do. It was a real push and pull for a while because I'm like, well, why don't you guys, why aren't you directing me? Why aren't you telling me how you want this scene to be? And they pulled me aside and these are my friends from college and they said, see, we didn't hire you because we want you to do what we want. We hired you because we want to see what you can bring to this. We want to see what you're, and from literally from then on, it's the best bit of advice I'd ever gotten, I think. From that point on, I take, like you said, ownership of my cut. 
because it's my opportunity to show them what I think I would do. But I, I don't, I don't deviate from the script or rearrange things, but I cut the way that they shot the best way that I think it should be. And then it's time to bring them in and collaborate and make it all ourselves. But, uh, uh, you know, up until that point, we do get that little sense of ownership because that's where, that's where our chance to shine and pitch our best ideas is. And then after that, it's like, let's, let's see how to make it better. And just, jump. just a little jump. something to add to what Jeff just said. Are you jumping, Andrew? I have to jump, yeah. Bye, Andrew. Bye, Andrew. Andrew. Thank you. It was really Bye. fantastic speaking with you. Thank you so much. And um, I look forward to the next one. Thank you, Andrew. Okay. All right. Bye, Take Andrew. Bye-bye. Just real quick, something to add to what Jeff just said. You know, I've worked on um, a lot of movies in the past where I have not been on location. This has nothing to do with Mandalorian. Just, you know, some uh, just a little sidebar. Um, and the director does not want me to be on location because he doesn't want me to be jaded by anything that I see or hear or witness or any kind of discussions that are had on set. He wants me to go at a scene completely blind, not knowing any, anything about that scene, any issues that they had on set, any, you know, notes that he's given the actors on set. He wants me to go at it with a clean slate because at that point I could bring in something completely different than what he had imagined and it might be better. It also might be worse, but at least it's a talking point that, you know, I could bring good, you know, new, newer ideas, fresher ideas to him. Thank you all for joining me. It was wonderful talking to you. I really appreciate all of your time. Thanks so much. This is always always a blast. Love your site. Bye, guys. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, Dana Globerman, ACE, Andrew Eisen, ACE, Jeff Siebenick, and Dylan Fershine. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally, be sure to share them with a filmmaking or film-loving friend.